The following podcast contains language that is not suitable for everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Super Skull Comic Book Podcast. I am Curtis Sullivan, and I am joined with my host, as always, co-hosts, Marcus Schwimmer. Hello, Curtis. And we got Aaron Polk in the building. Yo, what up? This is issue number 230. It's for the week of April 10 in the year of 2019. But Curtis, what is this podcast? It's a podcast about comics, sometimes games. Fucking nerd. Yeah, that's all we do. (laughs) We talk about graphic novels. And comic books and fangs, and sometimes we talk about some news. And board games. And comics. And general nerddom. That's right. Marcus tries to work LARPing into every fucking show, no matter how many times we're like... I got LARP shit to talk about this week, so get ready. Be quiet. Yeah, get ready. You can totally talk about it for like two seconds. All right, thank you. Uh, Something came up on Twitter recently that has my brain buzzing. It has me reevaluating... My myself as a comic book asshole. This is sweet, oh. sweet justice. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Let it be known that on issue number 230 of this comic book podcast, Marcus has finally admitted that he is a comic book asshole. Yep. Sometimes it happens. I love you, buddy. So someone reached out to Tom King, the current writer of Batman, via Twitter and was like, hey, I'm starting Batman on number 57. I really liked it. Can you please tell me what has happened before? Because I can't get all the back issues. I'm having trouble making sense of it all. That's right. And Tom King tweeted, um, thanks. And this is Tom King. I'm Tom King now. Thanks. Batman is sad because Selina, with a push from Bane, left him at the altar. Bane is trying to make him even more sad in order to break him. As part of this plan, he's subjecting Batman to a series of nightmares. Hope that helps. And thanks. That's it. That's Tom King's summary of 56 issues of Batman. Mm-hmm. And what it has me thinking about is often I will, Curtis will always say that books are a good place to jump in. Every issue of a comic is a good place to jump That's in. That's right. That's what I say. Every single one. And I'm always, <laughs> I'm always the asshole. It's like, no, you got to go back. You got to read issue one through 50 to, to understand what's yeah. going on or you could be missing it. You're not going to enjoy it. Tom King's kind of proved me wrong. Like he did just summarize 50 issues of Batman in a paragraph. And I wonder if I've been too hard on comics. Well, if no. I've been too hard on jumping in points, because maybe all you need to do is get that paragraph and you're off to the races. Tom King seemed to, to think that that's all you need. And he's the creator, he's the writer of Batman. Sure. And this is a very boiled down, you know, assessment of what has happened thus far in the Batman run. 100%. But it's plenty enough good to get you going uh, and get you in there. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent, and so we do this at the comic shop all the time is we have, like, this required reading program. And we'll just randomly throw, like, an issue of a comic at people who have never read any of this comic. And it'll be issue 38 or whatever the fuck it is. And more often than not, obviously you're confused. Of course. You don't know everything. You're jumping in at a later issue. But... It makes enough sense, and if you liked what you saw there, that's what's cool, right? Ooh, I didn't totally get all this, but I liked something, you know? Yeah. It was well-made. Let me find out more. So, I think I think there's a real opportunity here for Tom King to just go around and summarize every comic book run in one paragraph. In Right, and on just Twitter. Put, put that, yeah, put that as a, as a bookstore owner mm-hmm. under the book. Tom Gre- King Gre- says. Yeah, gr- you know, Green Lantern, you know, uh... War of the Rings or whatever, you know, there was one ring. Now there are many color rings. Green Lanterns don't know how to feel about it. And war's about to happen. Boom. And these dudes over here have big heads. Don't worry about it. And Just don't worry about those heads. heads. Yeah, it's and fine. they know a lot. Yeah. I think Tom King owes it to the comic book community to summarize every series <laughs> wow. in a paragraph so that we don't have to deal with this. Is it a good jumping in point? Oh, is number 38 of Teen Titans a good jumping in point? Doesn't matter Tom King has already summarized the first section of this book series for you. I mean, this is a job. Let's be honest. This is a full-time gig. Boiling down every comic book series. Let's say not every comic series, but modern, all modern comics. Let's say the last 10 years, Tom King. Let's say World War II on. Got it. He's got some work. Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos issues 100 to 150 summarized. By Tom King. The world needs that. Does he have to do, like, every single comic, or is it just the big two? Because, like, I would 
personally, yeah, I'd love to see Tom King summarize Vampirella and like zombie tramp. <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? So that's Tom King summarized his own book, and I wanted to talk about it because it, it kind of makes me feel like an asshole. So personally, I don't think that you've been been an asshole about jumping on points. Like, you know, we we have this conversation pretty much every single week on this podcast of, is this comic book that just came out this week a good jumping on point for somebody who's never read the book before? And honestly, the way that I see it is you could jump into Batman number 57 if you really want to. You're going to be a little bit confused. And it's a good thing that Tom King put out this summary. But ultimately, you're missing 56 really good issues of Batman. Well, and you can go back and get those. Of course, yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. think the question is, are the comics before good? No, no. Right? I think the question is, can you pick up a random issue of a comic book and get into it. Some and, of them, no. I, I think that people... <sighs> like Grant Morrison yeah. stuff, some of Grant Morrison stuff, you can't jump in the middle. Yeah. But it you, will make no damn sense. I know sense. that we're getting into the weeds here, but I think that if we told every comic book writer, every single issue that you make, every superhero issue that you make in this run of Batman or Superman or whatever has to be accessible to every reader, you're going to have shit comics. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. You're not going to have a writer who can do sequential storytelling and we're going to lose a lot of stuff in comics. No, so. and you can make a determination even if you're lost, you can be like this sucks or this was good. Yeah. I don't get it, but it's like you can tell that it's you know, there's quality there. Yeah, so I agree. Don't be scared jump into comics. I think so. I think that's what we learned. Yeah. Boom. That's the lesson we learned. <laughs> Curtis, what uh, what news stuff do you have for us this week? We have uh, an announcement from Ahoy Comics. That's a Who? newer publisher. What? Yeah. Who is Ahoy? So they've been around for roughly a year and a half. Oh, so they're baby comics. They're, they just have a few titles. They got a couple goofy ones that I like a lot. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror, which is super funny. It's like a goofball horror Twilight Zone anthology starring Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. It's super funny and on point. Uh, they just picked up Second Coming, which is a Mark Russell book that we're really excited for. It's about Jesus returning to Earth and having to uh, become roommates with uh, that that version of Earth's Superman. Sun Man. Sun Guy. Yeah. What's something like Sunman, this? Yeah, it's, it it's Sun Man, yeah. It is actually Sun Man. Is it? Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, so, yeah, they've announced that they are going exclusive uh, to the comics market through Diamond Comics. This, I guess, signals that they are, a, you know, potentially going to sell enough comic books for that to matter for Diamond to lock them down. When publishers go exclusive with Diamond, they are giving them more space in the previews catalog. Mm. So it does cost Diamond a little bit of money to do these deals. If anything, it shows that the largest comic distribution network in the United States is going to back this company. They have have confidence in Ahoy comic books. Right, which is great. The more diversity we have in comic publishers, you know, ideally the best stuff we're going to get. Yeah. The more, you know, the more comic publishers we have out there the the better the field of comics is going to be so it's good we we talk a lot of bad stuff about diamond on this podcast but i I think this is one of the things that they do well they put their money where their mouth is and they give these smaller publishing houses when they see that there's good product behind it you know an avenue to get their name and face out there in front of the buyers of books i mean i feel like that's a double-edged sword because diamond comics is the only comic book distributor right like there is no one else. Back in the 90s, there were a couple of different comic distributors, but Diamond ate them all or they forced them out of business. And now it's Diamond or you do it alone, right? Right. So, so I mean, now it's like, now it's you have to join the ranks of Diamond if you want to do anything substantial. On which, the national level. I, yeah. I don't know if that's true. Like Dark Horse is putting stuff out through um, Simon & Schuster. And getting put out there. So, like, we are seeing a little bit more diversity in the field, but this is, I yeah, think we're not doing single issues through Simon & Schuster. This is true. That's true. Only graphic novels. But I think we need to we need to make sure that we give Diamond credit when they do good things for the industry and putting money behind these smaller publishers when they come out and when they take chances on books like Second Coming, that is good for the industry. I think we have to you point right. that out because yep. the we... We, as comic critics and as comic fans, like to just throw Diamond to the fire as much as we can. Yeah, and, and you're not wrong. Diamond well, they, is doing cool stuff. They almost exclusively suck, but yes. <laughs> they they okay. occasionally do some things. That, okay, all right, fine. Yeah. 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 
And this is a, a cool cool thing. Uh, kudos to Ahoy Comics. Hopefully uh, this goes well for them. Looking forward to Second Coming. That comes out July 10th of 2019. I cannot wait yeah, for that. Yeah, man. Mark Russell is a beast. If you uh, are interested at all in his uh, books, check him out. He's did, he did Flintstones. He did Snagglepuss. Uh, he's doing Wonder Twins right now over at DC Comics. This guy is one of the best uh, current comic writers. Mark Russell. Check him out. Speaking of those DC books, um, DC has put out their own streaming and e-comic distribution service. It's called DC Universe. And um, it's turning out, like, as a comic book lover, it's turning out to kind of be an ideal service. Um, so not only are they creating their own content for, for videos like Teen Titans and Doom Patrol, and Doom Patrol's getting really, really good reviews, but they're also incorporating a e-comic service into it. So you pay a monthly subscription fee, and not only will you get you know, unique TV, but you also get back catalogs of DC Comics. So this DC Universe is like Comixology or... It's, it's a mix between like Netflix and Comixology okay. in one service. Neat. Um, and DC just announced that this week they're going to add over 2,500 comics to their service, which is a lot, and this is their back catalog. Mm -hmm. And while that seems like a lot of comics, it's really just a stress test because over the next few weeks, they're planning on adding over 20 thousand DC single issue comics crazy. to this service. That's so this week they're gonna add it. action comics, Aquaman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. They're also gonna have like some cult favorites like Commandi, The Last Boy on Earth, and the Omega Men. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, it's crazy to think that soon we're gonna have twenty thousand DC back issues all available on this one service. So it's called DC Universe. If you you know if you're interested in reading a lot of DC's books in one place, this seems like it could be a really good affordable way to do it. Yeah, and they they have you know the complete Batman animated series up there. Tons and tons of DC animation which I is rock solid yeah, well, I was uh, overall. While I was looking into it last night, I noticed uh, I used to watch a show called Young Justice. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. It's I an sure anima have. animated show. It was really good, and it left on like this big cliffhanger. Well, DC Universe has picked that series back up and is, is completing it with additional seasons. Season three is out now. I am going to get DC Universe, which is crazy because like I mostly consider myself, when I think of my favorite superheroes, it's mostly Marvel. But the fact that they're creating original video content and I can go back and read pretty much any DC back issue I want, it, that is very appealing to me as a comics lover. So I just did some very, very quick math. The DC Universe annual payment plan is $75 a year uh, plus taxes. So $75 a year uh, is $6.25 a month. Roughly. Yeah. Now, that's good. if you have if you're paying six dollars and twenty five cents a month and you have over twenty eight hundred books, each book is going to cost you point zero zero two of a penny. So just read everything. Just read everything. That's how you get the most value. But like we we talk about online comics a lot because it is it is a mover in the in the industry, right? More people are looking at online comics as they become more available. Yeah. But I think this, like, instead of doing a comicsology, which is just comic books, you can go and pay and read, like, this is the way to do it. This is the way to get people into comics because you draw them in with that, like, that TV show stuff that everyone loves right now, and then you also have all this comic service on the back yeah. end of it. I think DC Universe is a really smart way to do it, and I hope that they, they keep on going. Well, so. Curtis, as the owner and operator of a brick-and-mortar retail comic book store, how yeah. does that make you feel? I'm is it threatening? Not at all. No? Uh, no, and, and because there's no evidence to support that it cannibalizes physical comic sure. sales. Sure. Comic sales and digital comics have grown at roughly the same pace for the yeah. last few years. So it's just creating new readers. Yeah. Eventually, those readers are going to want to get their favorite comic books in that prestige hardcover format. They're going to have to go to a comic book store. You know, yeah, you can order shit online, whatever. Eventually, more people are going to find their way into comic book stores because of a service like this, I think. That's my view. And the data does bear that out over over time. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah the way I see I'm it, into is, it is similar to that. It's like... You know, people are reading comics. That's all that really matters. We need more right? more <laughs> readers, more eyes on yeah. comic books. And you're doing it legally. You're not doing any of that illegal download shit. This is right. Exactly. Some artists and writers might get paid. You know, DC's making money, which they need to do so they can keep producing new original content. So, yeah. Sounds good. I like it. And that's all the news that you need to know about. The news is over. 
So, you guys, I need you to ask me about my day today because uh, I want to tell you about it. Curtis Sullivan, how was your day today? You guys, thanks for asking. It was great. So, it's my wife's birthday today. It was so nice. We went out to breakfast. After that, we went for couples mani pedis. Oh, let Are me you see your serious? nail. I was. G- your nails look amazing, thought- my dude. Oh, wow. So, okay. how was the pedi part? That's the part that always freaks me out. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Oh, wow. Seriously, the birth of my children, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, getting married, mm, yeah, it's great. Loved it. Uh, a pedicure, you guys. It was luxurious. Foot massage, like salt rub down, exfoliant on the feet, uh, lotion. Uh, it literally was incredible. Curtis, you were describing my worst nightmare. It was the best thing this ever. My feet horrifying. feel incredible. It was at Diva Nails. <laughs> yeah. And they had a giant water feature when you go in. Did you feel like a diva? Work. I felt like a diva. It was incredible. I had the best fucking time, you guys. How I'm long serious. how long did the process take start to finish? Hour? Yeah, hour, 45 minutes, hour, something like this. I'm ready. Marcus, are you looking at places on your phone right now? No, I'm are not, you, like, but like gonna go right after this podcast. I, I don't have a problem with feet, but I'm always just so subconscious because my feet are like calloused. Well, you so know what I mean? Because I, I work outside, you no, know? Like, these people I, are professionals. I feel yeah, bad this for is, them. This is, But this is what they do no, all day. They like, are literally they professionals. On, yeah, they work on everybody's feet all day long. So they, they have dealt right, with somebody I'm gonna do them it. in the face, I'm sure. I'm going to do it. No, it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. You want to relax? You want to treat do. yourself? Seriously, you want to pamper yourself, Marcus? Yeah. What are you running? A hundred bones? No, dude. You ready for this? Yeah. 35 bones? No way. You're yeah, full of shit. Nope. Wow. You know, and you throw in a tip, yeah, obviously. Yeah, of course. So, I'm not a barbarian. And you're full 20%, no problem. Yeah. Um, it's like cheaper than lunch. Magical. Oh, my God. It, Sounds it's, amazing. Now it, it's added to my itinerary. It's going to be two, three times a year. I will be- Getting a mani-pedi. For sure. Oh, my God. Oh my Curtis, God, I, love, I love you so much, but like this is one of the things that I see about our personalities that are, at our core, so very different. So- Because you love something like this, and you just want somebody- like. You love the idea of somebody giving you a massage, whereas my perfect relaxation time that I can think of is an isolation chamber. (laughs) No shit. I just want to soak in salt water and have all of my senses completely muted. Look, That sounds amazing. I'm totally cool with that. I'm a very old person. This is the first time I've ever done this, so it's not like something I'm used to. Are you going to start getting these every week? This is what I'm saying. I'm adding it to my schedule. Not every week. For 30 bones, though, like once once a a month? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, if I look at my feet and I'm like, hey, my feet are looking like they Rough. need some love. But my cuticles are tight. <laughs> and that's what I did today. That sounds awesome. Hey, you guys want to talk about something that people actually want to listen to? Yeah. Like yes. comic books, maybe? Yeah. Hey, uh, let's talk about Michael DeForge, you guys. I love this man. Who is he? Uh, this week, our comic roundtable is featuring a uh, longtime comic book artist and zine artist and cartoonist, Michael DeForge. He has been around uh, doing comic books for a very, very long time. But let's go back to the beginning. He was born in the year of 1987. He's from Canada, so that means he's a a Canadian? Is that what they call? Yes, that's correct. Yep, they are Canadian. And uh, yeah, he started working in comics, making uh, mini comics and zines. And his art style has been described as a mix of like cut and paste collage, old timey cartoons. He uses photocopies and he definitely is an underground mini comics maker. So Yeah, he's a comics with an X. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the, all these things kind of fuse together. He's got a really neat aesthetic. And like when you say a comics with an X, like describe that culture to me cuz I like I like comics and I've read some of these, you know, comics with an X. Yeah. But what what in your mind defines the difference between regular comics and that that all important comics with an X? Yeah, so like subject matter may be a little more uh, adult. Not always, but but definitely leans that way. Mm-hmm. Handmade stuff, like Xeroxed and photocopied and hand-stapled, like each comic a bespoke thing made by the person who's making the comic book. So a little lo-fi, I guess, in its production, mm-hmm. um, but not always, but that's you know a trademark uh, uh, of zines in, in many comic culture, right? So would you consider this book to be a comics with an X, or no? Is, I, it, is it elevated? I would. I think it is elevated. It's a nice, beautiful hardcover. This is The book we're talking about is... Uh, leaving Richard's Valley, which we're going to get into in a minute. Um, but this is, yeah, this takes everything he's learned along the way and puts it, I think, uh, in a, you know, and more, I don't want to say upscale package, but it is a big, beautiful hardcover book. So where did um, Michael DeForge get his start? 
So we started uh, making, you know, like I said, uh, mini comics and stuff. But he did a web comic called Cave Adventure in 2008, which I really, really like. And you can still find it online. We'll put the link to that comic in the show notes. This is like, uh, imagine almost like an Adventure Time style, you know, kind of. The characters look kind of light and fluffy and cute and weird, but then uh, the gore just, is intense. At, oh, just murdering dungeon <laughs> dissidents like left and right yeah. in this thing. I read through a lot of uh, Cave Adventure last night, and I was really drawn to his monster creation. You can tell that this dude was like into eighties, late eighties, early nineties, like fantasy monster art. This dude, I would guess, has played some Dungeons and Dragons in his life because, like, the monsters are your stereotypical monsters, and then he changes like one or two crazy things about them, and that was really fun. I thought that it, it was a very enjoyable take on it, it's Adventure Time before Adventure Time, and it's because it's so gory, it puts you off a little bit because the world is is so unicorns and fairy dust sure. and all this other stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed reading it. And if you're looking for an entry point into Michael DeForge, I highly recommend you check out Cave Adventure because it's it's available online. You can just read it. So. Yeah. No, I think you're right. That mix of uh, content and style throws you for a loop in a, in a good way. In a good way. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, so he uh, started attending TCAF in 2019. That's the Toronto Comics Art Festival. It's a big comic show in Toronto. And uh, just seeing the breadth and width of comics being created at the show really inspired him to make his first comic book, Lose. And uh, serendipitously, he met Annie Koyama at that show, and she is a big-time supporter of indie comic books. She has a, a publishing house called Koyama Press. They, she's done num- tons and tons and tons of killer books over the last uh, handful of years. And so she agreed to publish his first book, and that's how it all began. Uh, he has put out comic books nonstop, since Lose number one, he's done collaborations with tons of other creators. He's done an issue of Lose every single year. He uh, did a book called, uh, in 2010, called Prison for Bitches. Yes. And this is a, described by Michael DeForge as a Lady Gaga tribute zine, and I need a copy. You've never read it? Never read it, and I'd love to have it so much. And so if anybody listening uh, knows how or where I could get a copy of Prison for Bitches, I'd love you so much, and let's talk. <laughs> DM me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Direct marketing. Slide into Curtis's DMs. So, yeah. I it, don't really know what that means well, either. Yeah. And one thing that kind of separates DeForge from a lot of independent comic artists is for a lot of these artists, it, their work is sparse. Even for like big name indie comic artists, you might have a collection of three or four pieces of work. Yeah. Right? It is not uncommon for these, some of these bigger artists to put out a piece every three or four years. And DeForge is, you know, in all rights, a machine. He puts to- out books totally every non-stop. single year. Yeah. Yeah. In some years, uh, two or three graphic novels and minizine uh, collaborations. Uh, yeah. The dude is cranking out comics. Yeah. He has. Definitely more than 10 graphic novels at this point, and it's, the dude is what, 30? 30 years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. He's putting in work. That is fucking awesome. We should also say that our uh, listeners may know Michael DeForge without even knowing it. He is a longtime uh, prop and effects designer for Cartoon Network's Adventure Time TV show. So, and that makes sense. Totally. I, I love that show. I've watched a ton of that show, and knowing that- Fuck yeah, that he worked on it. It he's his stamp is all over it, um, and he got this job. I love this. He, he he's quoted in an interview where he says, you know, he just went into an interview for the show and got hired. He had no experience in animation. You know, he had comics experience, but just got hired. And then as he was working this job, he just kept getting more and more stuff to do around Cartoon Network. So that's so cool. It's yeah. very cool. so. That's a little bit about uh, Michael DeForge, but. We're here today because of his new graphic novel, Leaving Richard's Valley. Yeah, so this is a collection of, it's like 485 pages. It's a big book, yeah. So beefy. This was originally published daily on Twitter. Yep, it was a webcomic. And it's still available up there. Uh, You can check it out, start at the beginning and read the whole thing. I totally recommend getting it all in this complete format at some point if you like what you see. Mm -hmm. It just reads so good, page after page. So this is a daily comic book strip. It's four panels. Uh, sometimes it's just one big panel, uh, which kind of like almost like a, a chapter. It's uh, like a title re- page. Reset or a title yeah. page, but uh, almost exclusively four panels. And th- it's about this guy named Richard who is like a Whole Foods 
kind of guru before there was it, a Whole Foods. I don't know if it is about Richard. Well, it's probably not about Richard, but yeah. it, it starts with this kind of self-help health food guru. So it it struck me. So it follows a couple different creatures, right? There is a raccoon named Lyle. Uh, there's a spider named Omar. Neville is a dog. Ellie is a squirrel. It ha- There's a bunch of these different creatures that the book opens up with all of them worshiping Richard in some way. Like, Richard takes care of us. He loves us. He would never let anything bad happen to us. Richard doesn't want us leaving the valley. And he says, Richard says that all of the water is impure. So we have to run it through these stones to cure our body of toxins. And it just starts getting weirder and weirder and weirder. It's very cult-like. It's very cult-like. It's definitely a cult. Yeah, and that's Uh what... What they're really selling to you is you get the perspective in the beginning of all of these creatures who are inside this cult and what their what their thought process is as being inside a cult and worshiping somebody, right? And Richard is the leader of this cult. And we should say that Richard's Valley is just like a- It's a park. It's a segment of a public park yeah. that they've just moved into. And in this world, uh, humans and animals just talk to each other. Yeah, they just hang and out. Spiders and frogs and dogs and squirrels yeah. and shit. They all converse and it's it's not weird. Uh, it's just how it works. Yeah. So this story follows Lyle and his friends. And after Lyle the raccoon becomes really, really sick- Um, his friends break Richard's sacred rules and feed him, or they give him some water that is not... It didn't go through the stones. It didn't go through the magical stones, so it didn't get uh, purified of the toxins. And it, it... he gets better from it, and they are all exiled. They are all forced from the cult, and they are... They're banished from the valley. Yeah, they're banished from the valley, so they have to go walk through this, like liberal college city is it portland it, it feels like it's portland very, it, it feels very portland it feels like toledo uh, not toledo, seattle ontario uh, yeah. yeah it feels like ontario is a province not ontario i just want to no i think i would love to book about these creatures going from one end of ontario to the other it sounds very <laughs> no, nice it, they're they're all going through like that college town that has a whole foods on every other block right right so it's it's like Boulder, Colorado, Portland, yeah. Ann Arbor. Oh, yeah. You know what I oh, mean? Yeah. Like those types of yeah, like. And it's fucking so, hilarious. It's it, yes. Yeah, because these creatures have only known a life inside the cult, and they don't know how to exist outside of it. So I actually found this contrast really interesting because I'm sure, like many people who have access to the internet and Netflix, there is an obsession right now, or that has been going on for a couple of years with like cult documentaries, right? Sure, uh, I love them. Wild Wild Country was a documentary. I that, loved it. Yeah, it came out a couple, uh, maybe two years ago on Netflix about um, the, the Rajneeshis. Yeah, yeah, it was so insane. good. Yeah. yeah. So what I really appreciated about this book is it like is very heavy-handed about the cultishness of it, but also it was very humanizing to people like that who were a part of a movement where they, unbeknownst to them, they had kind of been brainwashed and they were forced to move on into the real world and they just didn't know how to find a house or how to get a job or like their worldview is so distorted because they haven't known anything else and it is and in this book is an amazing expression of humor and abstract while also displaying a really impressive amount of empathy this and that's the important thing yeah is the empathy right because as these characters are devoting to this thing, as they're devoting to Richard and the the greater community that is Richard's Valley, yeah. they just want to do good. They want to be a part of something. Yeah. And when that falls apart, they deal with it in all these different ways. And it I, and they blame everybody else, but at the same time can't help but reflect on themselves and see, what did I do wrong here? Yeah, it's, it's pretty dang cool in that way. Because this is, I mean, I find myself laughing almost every page. Mm-hmm. I think if I'm describing this, it, it's, it's very funny. But it also has uh, the frog and the dogs have a deep humanity somehow, you know? <laughs> yeah, my favorite character is a snake named Mark. Oh, yeah. Who is just like wildly dramatic and is very much a queen and like. Loves his, Lyle the dog. He loves Lyle the dog, and his whole thing about life is like, woe is me. I am unlovable. He's constantly trying to write poetry and is terrible at it. And it's. He, he starts just his own cult. Hilarious. Uh, yeah. The Mark Marxists. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Snake Mark. Oh, and sorry, Lyle's a raccoon. Sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, how would you describe DeForge's art style? Because I have a I have a hard time explaining it to people. Like my partner was asking me last night. She was like, you know, what's going on with this book? Right. And I was pretty early in it, and I was like, first of all, I have no idea what's going on <laughs> in this book. And then it does take a couple pages to really get into it. Yeah. And she was like, well you know, the cover is very unique in itself. So she was like, what is going on? And I just had the hardest, I mean, I showed it to her obviously, but like I have a hard time vocalizing what this art is like or what inspiration it is. Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely inspired by, I mean, it reminds me of like early Disney cartoons in a way. Oh, yeah. You know, um, like the character designs, they're super, super simple. Yeah. Or Um, that video game Cuphead that came out a while ago. Oh, there you yeah. go. Which takes a lot of its inspiration from yep. early Disney, right? Yep. Um, if any of our listeners have seen Adventure Time, the show, uh, you know, design-wise, you can see some some through there. But yeah, they're very they're very organically shaped. They are circles most of the time. They're very simple um, with very. It's it's very strange because the raccoons kind of look like hearts with legs. With legs. But you can tell that they're raccoons, even though they look nothing like raccoons. And they have a tail, and when they ha- when they need arms, when they're using their arms, all of a sudden they have arms. That's another fun thing yeah. about this book. They just don't explain it. Like, if their arms aren't in use, they're yeah. just drawn without arms, which I think yeah. is fucking hilarious. So here's the thing about art like Michael DeForge's. Or there are a lot of people who kind of fall into the underground comics category that share similar art styles. It's, you have to let go of kind of your notions of what physics are (laughs) and what you know about the world and just accept that this book and the art style within this book is the reality of this book and and this universe. Yeah, and I think he does a really good job of of kind of establishing the rules. Yeah. You know, as you go, right, Um, and the way things happen. I'm obsessed with Michael DeForge. I think he's just on fire. I think this is such a neat book. It is telling this giant cohesive story, but then it breaks away with new characters and little diversions into other characters that pop in, and then we might not see them again for a while. Yeah. And I think the way it's constructed... There's a lot of simultaneous stories going on. Yes, it's really, really neat, and I think it's really, really easy to read. I was reading pages of this out of context to a couple folks I was hanging out with today, and they were cracking up. It's like totally non-context, four-panel little gags. You know, there's a frog in this book named Caroline that loves Richard, like, too much. At one point, she says, I want to kiss Richard until his head explodes. I want to kiss Richard's arms until they turn into skeleton arms. You know, because she loves Richard so much. But Richard's not interested at all because he's just, like, this weird, you know, asexual sort of, like, pansexual, you know, valley god. Yeah, who, and it's just, just not like, I want everybody to worship me equally, and yes. I don't care about any of you so long as you love me. So there's a page where <laughs> Caroline's doing yoga, frog yoga. Yeah. And, dude, it's four panels, and it's... It's so funny. It's so fucking yeah. funny, and it's the drawing, so there's only one word that's just like, there's a, a word bubble that's like, what are you doing? Yoga. That's it. That's all that's said. But it's so funny, the art, the lines, the drawings of Caroline, because she looks... She's got two giant eyeballs, and there's almost nothing to the the drawing. So, right? what kind of who who would you recommend this to? What kind of right reader would enjoy this book? Do you think? So, it's fans of Adventure Time for sure, and yeah. I know we keep bringing this up, but that is a particularly uh, wackadoo style of storytelling and humor. I think it's just got so much heart and and cool shit embedded in it. I think DeForge, all of his work has, you know human stories and real emotional resonance to this stuff, even though we're talking about bodybuilding frogs and uh, weird shit. So yeah. I'd recommend this to older people who who want to broaden their palate, but I would also recommend it to uh, anybody who's read previous works of Michael DeForge because I think they're different. This is different than other stuff I've read from him. Yeah. So if you're already on the DeForge train, do it. Of yeah. course. Um, How about you, Paul? Who do you recommend this I to? I would recommend this to the people who read, what was that called? Mega Hex? Sure. Meg and Hex? Yeah. What was it? It's Mega Hex, Meg and Mog. Yeah, Meg and Mog, Mega Hex. Um, this is going to sound, uh, I don't want to offend anybody, and I don't know how else to put this. I would recommend this to people who have weed humor. If you enjoy marijuana is what you're saying. Shit, yes. You will like this book. Yep. 
I, I would give this to anybody who's a fan of like drawn and quarterly books, yeah, fanographic books, that style of stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's really, really inclusive and just really fucking uh, smart and funny. I agree, and it works. I love it, love it so much. This is leaving Richard's Valley is what we're talking about. Uh, this is the new collection of the online strip from Michael DeForge. It's from Drawn and Quarterly Books. Big, beautiful hardcover. Check it out. At the Shiny year. hardcover. It's Yeah, yeah it's, it's like foil. Oh, I love it so much. And we should say this is all black and white, too. Yep. Uh, the whole book is black and white. It's got just such a great look. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, we're going to post a list of other Michael DeForge books in the show notes for you guys to check out. Uh Polk, I know you recently just reread Big Kids mm-hmm. from The Forge. Yeah. Uh, this is a book he did last year. Yeah, Big Kids. Uh, no, this was actually two, 2016. 2016. This was a couple years ago, but Big Kids is my favorite Michael DeForge book. Nice. Yeah, it is a. It's the story of. It's another very abstract story, right? The people don't really look like people, they look like sticks. Um, and it's the story of a young boy who's coming into his adolescence. He's sure. becoming a teenager. He's uh, their uncle. His uncle used to live with his family. He gets kicked out, and a new young girl comes to live with them. And it's about maturity, and it's about becoming an adult. And the premise in this universe is that everybody is a stick, until they become an adult and then they grow into bigger sprouts. But he has in his mind that doing being an adult is doing adult things. And adult things to him are having casual sex or drinking alcohol or taking drugs and that kind of stuff. And he's constantly trying to like figure out what sex is and drink if he can and get into trouble and do all the stuff that he perceives as adult stuff and he's not changing and it's frustrating and he hasn't figured out what it takes to become an adult and how to grow up and it's a really really good story it's a, it's a cool book and visually the way michael deforge shows you how he changes with yeah. the art i think is super super cool and and a tool of the comics medium. Absolutely. You know, you can't yeah. really do what he does here anywhere else. It's just so freaking cool and yeah. smart. Um, so he's got a ton of books. We're gonna we're gonna post a list. If you haven't already read Michael DeForge, I encourage you. If you're not scared by you know some some uh, mature subject matter, I mean it's not overly mature, but um, yeah, check it out. Yeah. yeah. What is your favorite Michael DeForge book, Curtis? It's, it's gonna be Sticks Angela. Oh. Folk hero. Yeah. Yeah, I love it a whole, whole lot. This is like a long format. It's like this widescreen presentation in the hardcover. It's just totally fun as hell. I love it. It's got more like talking animals. That's Leaving Richard's Valley. This is Michael DeForge we're talking about. Check out the list we post in the show notes to read more stuff by this great creator. And that's that's our comic book roundtable this week, you guys. Awesome. We totally did it. Thanks for listening to the Super Skull Show podcast. We spend a lot of time reading comic books every week and talking about them for you guys. Sometimes we play board games, and the thing that keeps it all running is you listening and telling folks that we're here doing the show. But also, if you can go to Super Skull Show backslash donate and give us a few bucks, $1 an episode, $5 a month is a really cool way to support the show and keep us rocking. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody who has already donated. Those of you who continue on the monthly subscriptions or those who have done a one-time donation, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. You are the reason that this podcast is free and can continue to be free. So once again, that is superskullshow.com slash donate. We've got one more thing to talk about before we go. What's that? Uh, Would you guys like to go to Iceland with me to play a board game? Yes! Get in the dog sled and we'll we'll what? mush over to Iceland. What, I, what can you can you expand on that Icelandic accent for me a little bit? Nope. Please, <laughs> I just can you just say, "Hi, my name is Curtis and I am from Iceland." Yeah, my name is Curtis and I am from Iceland. Not bad, not bad, Curtis Sullivan. Uh, okay. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> As I was like, Canadian. Why? No, no, no. Why are we in Iceland? Well, because we're going to play a game called Reichholt. It's a game of farming in Iceland. So what you're saying is it's the Icelandic farming simulator. It is. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to like get some vegetables and stuff, and we're going to like 
do stuff with those vegetables. Sweet. What is Reichholz, you guys? It's a game designed by U- Uwe Rosenberg, very famous board game designer. He's done Agricola, Feast of Odin, and Patchwork, which are, he's done many, many others, but these are like three kind of industry-changing, big moment games. Patchwork is this great quilt-making game. I know, you're falling asleep as I say quilt-making <laughs> game, but it's no, really, that, really fun and good. It is genuinely one of my favorite two-player games. It's so fun and easy and breezy. I love it. This dude is like running out of room for Spiel des Jahres awards in his house. He's won so many. He probably just has like a small room dedicated to his awards. Yeah, he like if the Spiel des Jahres awards are the equivalent of like the board game Oscars, he has a room just for Spiel des Jahres. He's won so many. Yeah, you go over to his house. Yeah, Yeah, you go over to his house and you're like, oh, hey, what's behind this door? Oh, don't worry about it. Don't go in there. That's just my award room. That's my award hoard. Yeah. He's, He's realistically, he's one of the like top 10 biggest board game designers in the world right now. He's totally great, and he's known for uh, a type of game, a worker placement game, where you're, you're, the way you select dragons is you place a worker on a thing, and it allows you to do a thing. And we'll get into that. So, uh, this game plays one to four players. It's 30 to 60 minutes long. It's ages 10 and up. Um, in this game, it's, it is a worker placement game, like we just said, and, and, and we grow vegetables in this game. And why do we grow vegetables? We, we want to feed tourists coming to the banquet tables that line the edge of the board, right? This sounds like a board game made for Marcus Schwimmer. Pretty much. When I told Marcus about it, he was like, holy shit, let's play it right, right now. now. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I gl- think I'm he, glad we did. I think I've gotten a, a text on my phone every single day this week from Marcus going, hey, can we play? Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, can we play? Well, I, I do like the theme because I think it could have been very easy to just make this another farming game. And... Rosenberg is known for farming games, right? So, like, Agricola is a farming game. Mm-hmm. Um, K- what's the cave one he did? Caverna. Caverna is, like, a ancient civilization yeah. farming game. Feast right? of Odin, obviously. Yeah, so yeah. He, this dude likes agriculture-based games, but I do like that instead of just growing things to score points, you're actually growing them and trying to grow them in a specific order because the tourists need different kinds of vegetables at different times. Right. So the player who feeds the most tourists and is the furthest along the table track wins at the end. So we're not keeping score as we go. We're just trying to have the right vegetables to move table to table to table and feed as many tourists as we can. And furthest one along wins. I like this. Yeah. Um, Some race games I don't love because, you know, it just feels like whoever gets there first wins. But this still involves clever gameplay. And I really, really like that part of it. And we should say that the player who goes first in this game is the player who most recently bought tomatoes in real life. Yeah. I will never get to go first. I don't like tomatoes. I never buy them. What the shit? Does like, like products with tomatoes in it count? I think we we would start with fresh tomatoes. Okay. And then we'd go, okay, nobody's bought. Okay, what's the last can of tomatoes? Boom. There we go. Okay. And then the last person to buy ketchup has to go last. Exactly. Uh, so we have work time. Players take turns placing their workers. And you, you place one of these little discs that has a picture of your worker on it into a spot that lets you do some stuff. Get some tomatoes. Get a greenhouse so you can grow more vegetables. Any number Plant of things, seeds, right? seeds. All yeah. kinds of stuff. stuff yeah. yeah, there's tons of actions. Yep. And the cool thing is, and this is where it gets crunchy, is when you place your workers, that is not available to anybody else. That action is taken. It is taken for that round. So uh, you may have already thought, I'm going to put a thing there. Boom, Marcus goes and puts his thing there first. Ooh, you got to, the cool thing uh, about this is you got to have a couple backup plans. Like maybe I'm going to go there, but if I can't go there, I may go here. And if I can't go there, I can go over here because places get gobbled up, right? And as you get to that last round of worker placement, there's less and less options for you. So Mm -hmm. that determines stuff. So we put all our workers out and then we go to harvest time, right? Where all players take vegetables from their greenhouses, if you can. Then we go to tourist time and you take all the vegetables you've acquired in those previous two rounds and you spend them to move down tables. Each table on the board has a vegetable on it a tomato, a carrot, a lettuce, a cauliflower, or a mushroom. And that is the racetrack to which you were referring earlier about, you know, the further along you get on this. Right. If you make it further than anybody else, then you win. Correct. And and this is what you're doing in the work time, in the harvest time. You're planning out how to get the right vegetables in the right quantities to move the most tables, right? So 
we then do that. That's tourist time is what that phase is called. And then we go into homecoming time where we all bring our players back, all our all our workers back to the... You reset the board. Or reset the board. And then we pass the, pass the player one token. And, and it all starts over again. And then it, we just go again. And it's seven rounds, you guys. And there's no points to score as we go. And we your your goal is just to get as many vegetables in the right order. It's yeah. really, really cool. Uh, and that's it in a nutshell, you guys. It's a very um, simple game. But at the same time, very crunchy. Well, so by simple, I mean that it's a very easy game to pick up and start playing. So, yeah. right. So when you're saying workers, I don't want people to think that this is one of those Rosenberg games where we have 900 workers that we're all trying to manage. This is true. Everyone's got three workers. Yep. And it's not so, safe. It's not risk. Right. You're just taking three t- round or three actions per turn. So it does move very, very quickly. Um, and and that's what I like about this game is that it has a lot of the crunch of other Rosenberg Euro-style board games. Right. But I, I think I could teach this game in five minutes and have people going around and playing. You may not yep. understand kind of the, the larger tactics because there is more to this game than meets the eye in your first playthrough, but you can get going and start playing in five minutes. For sure. And with a lot of Euro games, we don't get that. So I, I think we lose a lot of new board game players because of that reason. No, and I think you're onto something. This is the game that I would want to give people that would get them to an Agricola or get them to a Feast of Own, right? Don't start with those big, massive, huge 64 choices to choose. Oh, I got, you know, seven workers. It's, you know, it's crazy, right? I feel like you are attacking me right now, Curtis, because that's my favorite kind of game. Hey, I'm not attacking you. (laughs) I love Feast of Odin. I can't recommend it enough. I'm saying, but if you haven't gone Euro style gaming like this yet before for a new player, I think it's a really good entry level game. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, how long did it take for us to get going our first game? I mean, ten, five, five, ten, ten minutes. minutes tops, so yeah. easy to learn. And the crunch that we keep talking about comes in is where you're going to put those things. How are you going to maximize your uh, workers that you place? Because you only have three. And so every decision feels like it matters, right? You get amazing components in this game. Like, holy shit. You get little tiny wooden... Meeples. Yeah, meeples of each of these vegetables. I love it. Like, the artwork on this game is gorgeous. It's, like, it's one of those games where you pick up the components to it and it feels good. No, all the vegetables go in these cool cardboard, like, bins bins that you build to hold them. It's got a great look. So So one other critical question that I have for you guys. I mean, I want you to be a little bit more critical. Were you guys ever bored when you played this game? Please be honest with me. I will say that I I did get bored when because you you have to use all three of your workers right yeah it's required by the game so there are certain times where I couldn't do anything to achieve my goal because the spaces that I needed to put my workers to do the action to achieve the goal were taken and it was like all right well I guess I'll do like the third or fourth best thing then and you so just like could, throwaway turn yeah like a throwaway turn I did have a couple throwaway turns and I don't know if I would say that I was bored but it did seem a little disappointing that there wasn't anything I could do to achieve my goal. Yeah, you will have some, uh, and so far, I'm probably five games into this, you'll have some uneven turns. Well, like, I'll have a turn where I just line it all up, and it all works out, and I just got a stack of vegetables, and I'm just moving four or five tables, and it's awesome. And then the next round, one table. I can only do one thing. You get a pity table. Yeah, and and that does suck. Yeah. Um, But, to be fair, I think, you know, planning your actions better, and obviously, Spaces are going to get gobbled up, so you can only go to what's available, but planning your turns, you know, a little better, thinking down the road. You know, maybe you can have less, like, great turns and shitty turns, at least for my play style, and have more, like, good turns. Yeah. 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 Um, Never bored, though, because this game moves very quickly. Yeah. You know, unless you got a player who's sitting there just... You know, thinking, 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 thinking. Oh, a thinking. Polk. Hey. You're talking about a Polk player. You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to throw any names out there. I admit to my flaws. There. Yeah. <laughs> I admit to my flaws. I will say that I I know that I took some extra time because I wanted to read everything. And I am a confessed and professed min-maxer. Oh. This is, this is a little tiny bit of a problem for me. And in a game like this where there are so many options on your turn and each option that you have for your turn is kind of a lot to read. For sure. Um, yeah. It can take some time for me to figure out what I want to do. Uh, and I 
I don't know. There, it made my brain feel a little weird because it is really difficult to actually make, or at least for me, because I have only played it about three times. Yeah. Uh, it is kind of difficult for me to actually think of and then implement a strategy, right? Well, but if, this isn't that type of game. Well, it I is. know, and I think that like hurts my brain. I don't think it is. <laughs> so if you, I think on a round, if you don't optimize your three pieces, you could really bungle around. You know, if mm-hmm. you if you put a piece in and in, in, you know, it once it's down and you do the action, oh man, you know, you don't get the the two cauliflower you need if you would you know, you can really change the course of your whole round by yeah. one you know, if you don't yeah, really but you, look at your options, it's right? It's not it's not that big Euro Agricola where you can lay out three or four turns because there is the inevitable someone's going to put their worker on your thing on the space that you want. That's sure, going to happen. Gonna happen. Yeah. Every yeah. round in this game, someone is going to mess with that plan that you made. So the game does force you to kind of fly by the seat of your pants a little bit. And I like that. Unlike those bigger Euro games. So I think if you're looking for a game where you can do a four or five turn super play, this isn't that game. Yeah. Because you can't plan for more than... I'm going to place this worker here now, and hopefully I'll get this hey, other Hey, don't place. tell me what I can do. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i plan for that super play, Marcus. See, if that's what you want to do, I just don't think this game is optimized for it. Yeah, the other thing that I had a slightly, not hard time with, but uh, I found it to be more annoying, was uh, during harvest time, you can only harvest your greenhouse if it's completely 100% full. Yeah. Like, that is the only time that you can harvest it, and you can only take one item from it. Um, I feel like that mechanic was off balance for the rest of the game. Um, maybe this is because I haven't played it. I haven't spent as much time as like you have, Curtis, because you've played it more times than I have. But it, there were a couple of elements of this game that felt slightly off balance. Um, and just not even with how quickly you can do other actions. Like, I really did not feel like the harvesting action was on balance with seeding or with some of the other actions that you can take. Sure. So that was uh, a little awkward. But overall, like, it, it didn't ruin it. It just took some time to get used to. And by the time I got used to it during the game that we were playing, it, you know, half the game was over. Sure. So, Well, luckily, you know. it's a very brisk game. Yeah. We just played it today, and what what we do? We clocked it in 40 minutes? Maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. three-player game. So... Yeah, we'll play some more, yeah. and uh, you'll master I'll the harvest, again. I promise. Yeah. So, Curtis, what are your final thoughts on this? Where did you land on your enjoyment meter? I've had a lot of fun with this game. I've played it with a ton of people who don't play a ton of board games. It's very easy to get to the table with new gamers. It's very easy to teach. Uh, I think it still, for how easy it is to teach, I think it still has some meat on those bones. There's some good strategy there. Mm-hmm. Uh I really like this. Uh, For gamers looking for a medium weight euro that you can bring to the table uh, with just about anybody, I think, even uh, new board gamers would pick up, pick this game up pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, Do it. The price point's great. Uh, The art's great. It's, I think it's uh, a really solid package. Awesome. Yeah. Marcus, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I... I like this game a lot. I enjoy worker placement games, but don't always have the time to play a Caverna or an Agricola. Um, But I've always been a fan of Rosenberg's work. I don't think that this game is going to maybe be as big as Patchwork, which is is one of his larger releases, or Mm -hmm. an Agricola. But I think for me, this is my Puerto Rico replacement game. So Puerto Puerto Rico is a game that was put out by Mayfair Games a long time ago. It's been kind of like this pedestaled worker placement game. Um, But I have a lot less time than I used to have to play board games. So I get everything out of um, this particular game that I get out of Puerto Rico, and it's not a two and a half hour game. That's the thing. There's a right. lot to be said for uh, a 45 minute hour long game that still scratches that 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 itch, right? Of a right, you know, of a Euro style game, but but quick. Yeah. Know? So I was a little disappointed by the theme. Oh, I I like really? well, I like Icelandic things i like farming it should be a a fit for me yeah knowing everything about you and about this game i would think that it would be perfect right but i never really felt like the actions that i were taking were related to farming and i never thought that the theme was just fluff and that's fine i don't need all of my games to be like super linked to their theme but um i don't know i thought the the theme i could have i could have left 
Uh, but the mechanics are very, very solid. And I, I, I'm, I didn't know that I was in the market for a 45-minute worker placement game until I started playing this. And I think that this can easily replace some of those two three-hour worker placement games. I'm getting the exact same stuff out of, out of this game for much less time and much less money. So I think that is its biggest strength. Mm. And it's got a one-player mode, we should say, and there's a story mode to mix it up a little more, which we tried today, which, you know, just another little variant on yeah. the game, which is nice that it's in the box. So, yeah. Uh, Polk, final thoughts? I would say that I put this game wholly in the, I really liked it. I didn't quite love it, but I really liked it. Uh, it's a fun game. It's pretty casual. Uh, like I said, though, there was some issue with the crunch in the mechanics that, like, felt uneven and didn't quite work and it that took me out of it more than it should have so i think that if those little things that i had issues with were cleaned up i would have i would have loved it right right but overall approve there it is that is reichholt from renegade game studios designed by uve rosenberg uh at your local game store now check it out if you if this review made you feel that way uh finally uh, now that we're out of the board game corner, now that we're back from Iceland, I'd like to hear about some things that aren't comic books or board games from you guys. A recommendo, as we call them on the show. Aaron Polk, you got a recommendo for us? I do. My recommendo this week is turn your phone into black and white. Wait, what? So I have found that I get distracted by my phone a lot, um, whether that's while I'm working or, you know, sometimes I get that horrible urge to check my phone sometimes when I'm waiting at a red light or something, sure. you know. Um, and I found, I read an article a long time ago, I think it was a New Yorker article about somebody who changed their phone settings to black and white and they use their phone significantly less. I did it for a while, I stopped doing it and I've done it again and it is kind of relieving honestly mm. i spend a lot less time on my phone like i like meaninglessly you've you know? noticed a change I for have, real i've noticed a legitimate change in how often i use my phone and i don't like when i'm bored i don't just pick up my phone to do stuff mm. turning my phone into black and white makes me want to spend less time on my phone doing mindless stuff uh and it actually like i only use my phone at this point for Phone calls and texting. Like Weird. what phones are supposed to be used it's for. It's because of those colors. Those colors are designed to, to lure make you us in. love them. Yes, and be addicted to them. Legitimately, yeah. you can be addicted to colors. The science is real. Yep, and that's why shit like Candy Crush is so infected into people's brains. Really? So I highly recommend it. If you want to try to take a break from your phone or try to use your phone a little bit less, uh, you can really easily turn your phone into black and white. And I guarantee you, you will spend less time on it within one day. Boom, there it is. Helping folks, as always, Aaron Polk, Aww. thank you for that. Mm. little public service announcement. <laughs> uh, Marcus Schwimmer, uh, any recommendos from you, my friend? Yeah, go see Shazam. The movie Shazam. DC finally made a fun, enjoyable movie to watch. Wow, yeah. okay. Wonder Woman is just in the back here going, fuck you. And I, I recommend I recommend you see it. Yeah, I put it right up there with Wonder Woman. Nice. As, as top two DC movies. Um, put it up there with the Nolan Batman trilogy. I think, uh, I think DC really... Hit. Up there, wait, 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 uh, wait uh, Nolan Batman trilogy good? Yeah, I put it up there with that. Wow. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a blast. It's totally different from uh, every other DC movie that uh, I've seen. Who's it for? Is it, I mean, is it, it looks it's, like it's for like 10-year-olds and no, up. No, it's for everyone, okay. 100%. Do cool. you like comics? Go see Shazam. Nice. I cannot wait. Actually, the trailer looks like a lot of fun. Curtis, what you got? I got uh, a new movie that I watched. This is the opposite of Shazam. It's called Dragged Across Concrete. This is a new film from a guy named Stephen Craig Zoller. He goes by S. Craig Zoller. Bone Tomahawk guy. Yeah, and he also did another movie called Brawl in Cell Block 99. This guy makes $3 million modern crime movies. These are just gnarly, character-driven, dialogue-driven, very slow-moving. Uh, bloody. Bloody, movies. with yeah, with these punches of ultra violence. These are not for everybody. These are R-rated crazy movies that will stick with you. You will think about them. Uh, Bone Tomahawk is one of the best westerns to come out in years for uh, my money. And I love this guy because he makes movies that cost three million bucks in an era where films, a cheap movie is $80 million. Yeah. Uh, he gets an all-star cast. He brings actors back that you haven't seen in a long time. This movie features the troubling Mel Gibson, who I have a lot of real life issues with, mm -hmm. but he delivers like a very, very nuanced, uh, different style of role. Uh, 
This movie is fucking great. The ending punched me in my gut. I loved it. This is dragged across concrete. Uh, it didn't really hit a lot of movie theaters, but it's streaming someplace now for sure. Uh, but Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cell Block 99, this guy's other two films, totally streaming for free right now. And I recommend them highly for folks uh, who love uh, their violence. Gritty, Vince Vaughn is in the, this. Yeah, huh, he, he's uh, also in Brawl and Cell Block 99, and he just puts in a show-stopping performance. It's incredible stuff. Awesome. So, there you go. Them's our recommendos, Good. and that's going to do it for another episode of the Super Skull Show. Our producer and editor is Aaron Polk. Our music was created by A-Bomb. Super Skull is recorded every single week at the Ann Arbor District Ro- Library, except for some weeks when it's not. Please subscribe, download, and review the Super Skull Show on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. We're also on Spotify and various other places on the internet. Please leave us a review. That shit is super helpful. It gets us noticed, and it makes algorithms work. And if you don't want to leave us a review, just tell somebody about the show. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website. Super Skull Show is how you find us. You can find it in your heart. $1 an episode. $5 a month. It makes the whole thing work. Don't donate to that health food commune slash cult that you're thinking about donating to. No, donate to us at superskullshow.com. We need it more. Richard doesn't leave your money. Slash donate. Super Skull is brought to you by Vault of Midnight, Earth's finest comic books, and stuff, and thanks, and podcasts since 1996. My name is Curtis Sullivan. I'm Marcus Schwimmer. And I'm Aaron Polk. And we wish you good reading. Until next week. Tone Bomahawk. <laughs> Bone Hamak. <laughs> three, <laughs> three, two, one. Bone Tomahawk guy. Yeah.